Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every week. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Out West is Adam Stanko, our guest today. Also out West, the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning filmmaker, Mike Talasian. You know him from on the hoop side, going all the way back to whatever happened to Michael Ray. More recently, the 30 for 30, Once Brothers, the Vladi Divac and Dryzen Petrovich story. Also, cue ball. San Quentin inmates experience with basketball as therapy of sorts. He is currently the SVP and EP of original content and league partnerships for Fox Sports. And, and maybe most significantly, he hired Adam at the Pac-12 Network. So we'll get to that <laughs> shortly. Like, what, was your, what was your first day like, if you remember, as a production assistant at the NBA? Uh, man, that's a good question. That was quite, quite, a, quite a while back, but... Uh... Um, you know, I just remember the way NBA E was, it was a small office on 32nd street in Manhattan on the East side. And I just remember walking past the few offices and then there was the, the tape archive and it was just these, um, these like racks, floor to ceiling racks of three quarter inch videotape with basically every game that had been played. And you kind of walk past these, these racks. And then in the very back by the bathroom, there was this tiny room. It was probably eight by 10 where there were these logging stations. And I just remember, you know, my first assignment was to like pull a, pull a tape from a game off the shelf and sit out and pop it in the machine and um, watch the game and log the highlights. And, you know, it was just, a very surreal I mean at the time it was my first job out of college and I just I was just so excited uh to be working for the NBA and to have my job be to watch um NBA games uh and watch some of my heroes and players I loved and just log the footage and write down the highlights uh, that would ultimately end up in features and uh promos and things like that so you know for a 22 year old kid it it was just unbelievable. Even though I was making like, you know, fifteen, sixteen thousand yeah. dollars a year and <laughs> trying to figure out how to survive in New York City. But uh I, I that's just I just remember looking up and looking and pulling all those tapes off the shelf and you know, it was just kind of surreal. The uh probably the lowest paid Cornell graduate at that time, I'm sure. <laughs> in the yeah. in the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well it's funny because it was either I was I was I was an economics major in college, so I was down in New York applying for like jobs in wall street and solomon brothers for like you know you know fifty thousand dollars a year and then i just on a kind of a whim interviewed uh at the nba and it's just funny how your life can the path of your life can be decided in you know one decision huh. like that but it, it's worked out and uh um i do have a funny story when i was interviewing um Don Sperling, who's a friend of mine, who was uh, uh, head of NBA Entertainment at the time, mm -hmm. the one question after kind of the normal interview question was, name the starting five of the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, yeah, I can see <laughs> so that. That was, yeah. that, was, that was the interview question. I think I got, you know, Brad Davis, or every, I can't even remember, but I, I think I got four out of the five, so I, like, that kept me in contention. Right, so what, so what year was that? That was... Uh, 89, I think. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I, I could see, uh, I could see, I could, yeah, Don was my first boss somewhere after freshman year of college when he had an, his own production company, Pearl Entertainment. And I worked on a, a college yeah. football project with him. I could, yeah, I could see that. And I think as they, <laughs> as those interviews went on in years, it turned into starting five for the Indiana Fever. I think they've gone <laughs> to G League teams. I think they've gotten even more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get a job there now. I'm certain. When you think back at that time, as a as a guy that I mean, you mentioned it. You're a basketball fan, big Celtics fan, growing up, and all that. Obviously, a yeah. thrill just to be popping in the tapes and watching the games of every every game that was just played. But being around the NBA offices, what other cool experiences did you have just being part of the NBA organization? Oh, I mean, just just to be around, being able to go. I mean, as a PA, sometimes I would get to be like a camera assistant. So I would be able to go to Madison Square Garden um, and assist Barry Winnick, who was, 
you know, mm-hmm. um, the main cinematographer who really started NBA Entertainment. He was a, a cinematographer who had captured all this footage um, of the NBA. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was in his 60s and he was kind of a tough character, but super talented. But he, I would go and like carry the, you know, carry the batteries or the, or the, you know, um, the tapes or the film or whatever. And I would get to sit um, on the baseline in Madison Square Garden and, and, you know, watch Pat Ewing or whatever, like three feet away from me banging under the boards. Like it was just, you know, I had never had that perspective, you know, and then to see Barry and how he worked. And even from then I learned, I learned how to do audio so I could go and just, you know, hold the boom pole and do the audio for interviews. And the one I remember the most was I'd probably been at the NBA for a year. They were doing a a home video on Larry Bird called, I think it was called Larry legend or something. It's still, I think the best documentary on Larry Bird. It's many years old now, but um, that was my first experience with real long form documentary filmmaking. And I grew up in Boston in the eighties and, you know, idolized those guys. And here I was, I got to go to um, French Lick, Indiana and Terre Haute. And I got to sit there in the interview room uh, with Larry Bird. I got to go to his high school. Um, I got to see him, you know, drink beers on his porch with his neighbors who drove over in a tractor, you know, when the interview was over. I mean, so that was just some of the access. Uh, So even though I was barely making enough to pay my rent it didn't really matter i just you know i was working in a world that i you know i had played basketball in high school and all but here i was working in a world that was just you know one of my favorite things and at the same time it was planting the seeds of my eventual career of storytelling um in sports and so uh it was it was really fantastic more from mike talasian in a moment but adam has i've been telling you for a long time and you tell me also, let's just tell everybody about Blinkist, since it's mm. so hard, as as you know more than me, to find time to sit down to read and learn more. Although, <laughs> you'll send me texts in the middle of the night saying like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. And I always end up responding with, with what time? I, I, like, I, know you, I know you live and thrive off chaos, but I just yeah. assume then you're using your free time with Blinkist since it's such a unique app. It works on your phone, tablet, web browser, and it takes all the best key takeaways, all that need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and then condenses them down into just about 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. So in the time that you have to make dinner or clean up from dinner or you're making the bed, you can consume a book since as we talked about before, you don't have to say, oh, I just read or I just listened to and nobody's going to ask you. You just say, oh, I just finished, et cetera. And then yeah. add the book in there, like The Secret Powers of Negotiating by Roger Dawson. Good one. With Blinkist, you can get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you need and want for all one low price. Right now, limited time Blinkist special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash NBA, try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash NBA, start your free seven-day trial. You'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash NBA. Blinkist.com slash NBA. Well, Mike, some will say that you should never meet your heroes. So when you met... Mm -hmm. When you met Larry Bird, what was the personal experience like? Um, you know, it was it was awesome. I mean, he was just as you had heard. You know, he said um, the hick from French Lick, and despite all the success that he had had, like I said, he still, you know, he was still like this small town guy who hung out with his neighbors and drove the tractor and cut his own grass while he was drinking a beer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, it was just amazing to me that I could, he could be this way. And then you'd go and see him like score 38 points and get, you know, 13 assists and, (laughs) you know, 10 rebounds and talk trash, you know, with the best of the best. And, you know, guys from, 
you know, the inner city and stuff like that. Like he's just a unique character, but it was, it was super cool to see that he, at least at that time was still the same guy that he kind of was portrayed as. Um, but he was, you know, there's no doubt he was just a killer um, on the court. Obviously so much to get to in a, in a bit with, with your filmmaking career, but also when you're at NBA at that time, you get a chance to work on inside stuff. And obviously yeah. people remember that it brings back so many memories for people. What are some of your, so your fondest memories working on inside stuff? Yeah. I mean, that was just a godsend for me because I think I'd been at the NBA maybe a year or two. And before, before inside stuff had launched, you know, I was just, what I would do is after my shift logging, just because all the tapes were there and the, and the edit machines were there, I would just stay late and I would like cut my own highlight videos and put them to music and do my own little mm -hmm features and things just using the footage that was already existed and i i would show those to the other producers you know my, my senior guys senior to me and i would get their feedback and um you know and i would just learn kind of on my own and they i think they saw potential in me so then when inside stuff was created um they they i was able to say hey look i can do this and it really um maybe earlier than i would have normally gave me an opportunity to go out and really produce and i remember my first feature was um it was a draft when larry johnson was predicted to be the first pick and i, I pitched this idea and they they let me go out to texas where he was uh training because i think he had to go to where he played juco there or something and i got He's to from dallas yeah yeah i got to interview larry johnson and come back and edit the piece together and have it go on inside stuff. And that was just like, I mean, I just, just through the roof. I was so excited and <laughs> nervous. And, um, and then inside stuff, you know, what it was, was it was every single week there was this half hour show. So, and I was on the staff of the show at that point. So every week I got another rep, it was either cutting jam session or rewind or, or the main feature with Willow Bay or, and, and Ahmad. I still remember to this day, a feature I did uh, with Ahmad when we went to left rack city in Queens to do Kenny Anderson. Um, I mean, I did hundreds of features, but that one, I, I can't remember what it was just being in Queens and being on this hallowed ground of, of New York point guards. Um, I just remember that piece and, uh, and how awesome uh, that was. Adam and I have talked about it before. I wore out the 89 Lakers championship video. There was a Hawks, a Hawks 87 video, a Celtics 88 video, NBA superstars yeah. on VHS, NBA superstars too. So oh, when you yeah. say putting highlights to video, like anytime I hear warrior, I think of the Charles Barkley highlight video from NBA superstars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, those home videos, I mean, you, you laugh, we laugh now, you know, home video, home video, but those things were the bread and butter. You know, those were the big, the year ender tape, the championship tape at the mm -hmm. end of the year was always like the biggest project. And then those home videos just sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. So like you said, we'd come up with, you know, all these different themed videos and ankle breakers and all these things. And, you know, I was really, I thought at the time, at least I was really good with music and, and editing. And so I would just have a blast, like editing these fast paced highlight films and, you know, Sean Kemp, you know, mm -hmm. donks and, um, awesome. and, and with inside and with inside stuff, again, it was, you get a rep every week. So I was learning at an unbelievable pace and there was a, such an unbelievable output and pressure to, to top yourself with the next jam session. And, Oh, I'm going to use, you know, uh, purple haze you know uh, <laughs> jimmy Hendrix, and at, at that time it was crazy because we just used whatever i mean i used led zeppelin songs and jimmy hendrix and <laughs> i would just use any music and we would fill out this form i guess it was supposed to be for copyright but i don't think we ever paid anything you know, <laughs> for, for these songs i mean now it's it's much more strict but we just kind of went with it and i was just it was i would just have a blast with it it was awesome it was Small Town was Larry Bird's song. And I, I still think of Small Larry Bird Town. every time I hear Small yeah. Town on, on, yeah, from yeah. Superstars. Was there a inside stuff shoot that just went completely wrong? Um, you know, was it an inside stuff? I don't think it was an inside stuff shoot, but the one I remember was we were doing a special for NBC. We used to do these specials for NBC. Adam, you probably might have seen this one. This was on, on the 76ers. And... It was a multi-part show 
And I remember I got the opportunity to interview Iverson and I had gone down to Philly and I was super excited because I was a big Iverson fan. I just loved his, his whole game and his swagger. And, um, you know, the fact that he was just so genuine on camera. I mean, a lot of guys would give kind of the PC bite and all that, but Alan right. would just tell it, tell it like it is, whether you like it or not. And, um, um, so we went down and we interviewed the GM. What was his name? The GM at the time with the goatee. Are you talking about when Pat Croce was on? Croce, was on yeah, Croce. Got to interview uh, Pat. And um, and then we were supposed to interview Iverson. And we were all set up at, it was I think it was at like a gym or it was a practice facility. It was above the facility. We had it all lit. And I was all excited and all ready. And she just no-showed. You know, he just didn't show up and I was just crushed and we were on a deadline and, you know, Alan was like the key part of it. And I was just, you know, I was, I just didn't know what to do. And I talked to, you know, my boss at the time and um, they just said, well, just stay down there and see what you can do. And I stayed down an extra day and tried to work through Pat. And finally the next day, Alan did come. He showed up the very next day and ended up getting, one of the greatest interviews I've ever had ever done at the time. Um, and he was just that, I mean, he just, you know, wore his heart on his sleeve and spoke from, you know, you know, spoke very genuinely without any, um, trying to make anyone feel good or anything like that. He talked about his life, his struggles, his marriage, you know, uh, and all that. And it just goes to show that, you know, sometimes you just have to improvise and roll with the punches, especially when you're, when the stakes are high and, and you're dealing with someone like that. Um, but it was a lesson. It was a good lesson for me as a, as a filmmaker and a storyteller. It's, it's so funny because we just talked to Mark Jackson, his former teammate was asking about that. Cause it's legendary in Philly. Like the guys try to set up shoots with, with Iverson have a certain time. And then it's, it's going to be on his, it's on his schedule that yeah. weekend. You better be ready for a weekend and you hope that you catch him. Yep. at some point during the weekend and stuff. No um, doubt, but, but, if you do, but if you do catch them, it, it pays off, you know, so. Yeah, so you're in NBA entertainment. They're not paying you a ton of money. You're yeah. loving what you do. But now at this point, you make the decision that you want to get deeper into this game here. Yeah. So you go to USC for, for film school. I'm curious, mm-hmm. people always say, oh, that's, that's day one lesson in film school. When you actually go to film school, especially one as esteemed as USC, what is that the first thing you learn at film school? Well, for me, um, you know, I, I loved my job at the NBA and I had moved up from a PA to an editor to a producer. And, you know, I, I could have easily have just stayed there and, and probably had a, you know, great, a great career staying at the NBA. But, you know, I was interested in, in learning, you know, how to tell other stories and um, other sports and non-sports things and write screenplays. And so um, I had applied. And, and when I got in uh, to USC, um, I actually was waitlisted and I got in off the waitlist. So um, there was no no guarantee. But when I did get in and got there, you know, it's right in Hollywood. And, you know, you get to you know be at the school where so many great filmmakers ha- had gone through. So it was it was fantastic. But the biggest thing that I learned was um, about uh, story structure. You know, uh, it, it was around screenwriting class and really uh, story structure was the biggest thing. Like, you know, the three act structure, beginning, middle and end, and, you know, creating tension and suspense and conflict, um, whether it's a sport three minute feature or a 90 minute documentary or a fictional um, scripted story. And I had this one professor who no longer is alive, but his name was Frank Danielle. And we would literally watch movies, the same movie multiple times. And we would break it down from a story structure point with a fine tooth comb. And I took the class once and it was so good that I would just sit in and take it. I would go to that class every year. I would just go and sit in even when I wasn't getting credit for it because it was just so unbelievable. And we watched so many classic films and I realized that there was just a consistent structure in all the greatest films and how it worked and how you played with audiences expectations. And that's from that class that has influenced every project that I've done since then. And all my documentaries, even though they are documentaries, I, I try to make them feel like 
a, fi a feature film that unwinds um, just like a scripted story. Adam, you like to save money, right? I love to save money. You like food? I love food as well, Noah. Right. Okay. So I'm going to give you a way to save money and then you can spend it on food. Okay. RockAuto.com. You can repair and maintain your cars while saving money. So why would you pay 30, 50, sometimes even 100% more for the exact same auto part at a chain store or a new car dealership when you could just go to rockauto.com, which has an amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. It's all on rockauto.com. So everything your car could ever need, and it's in a catalog that's easy to filter and remarkably easy to navigate. So you can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle, choose the brand, specifications, the prices you prefer. So if you go to rockauto.com right now and you can see all the parts available for your car or truck and just write locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D space on locked on in their how did you hear about us box, then they'll know that we sent you. Amazing selection reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. Playing with audiences' expectations. I, I'd never mm -hmm. heard it put that way. And when I think mm -hmm. of, whenever I describe either films that I really like or TV shows that I really like, I'm, I, always, I always say, well, you never know who you should be rooting for from one episode mm -hmm. to the next or 10 minutes to the next. Yeah. And that plays that plays right into audience expectations. And that's what I like so much about it. What was the the typical USC film student like at the time? Someone like you or someone who thought, well, tomorrow I'm going to be the next Gorsese? It was kind of a combination. I mean, I think everyone that went there when you got into USC, you know, you had dreams of like, oh, I'm at USC. I am going to be the next Spike Lee or <clears throat> Scorsese or <clears throat> George Lucas. Um, and everyone there was super talented. I think because I had worked, you know, like five years right. and I was a little older um, when I went, I think I had a little bit different perspective and, and sense of reality. And I knew that um, while, you know, those three picture deals do happen once in a while that, uh, that it was, those were rare and that I was really, um, you know, going to take a lot of hard work and some good breaks. And, you know, look, I went to school with guys like um, Eisner's son and, people that were super connected and things like that. So um, those people had a little bit of a leg up, um, but um, you know, it was great to, to meet with lots of students from all over the, the country and the world, different, different ethnic groups, men, women. And I just remember those, those short film sessions that we had. I mean, at that time we were still shooting on the first freshman class. We would shoot on super eight film. We had to, we, everyone had to find a super eight camera there was one company that developed the Super 8 film and we would shoot it without any sound and we would cut those films on with like on these reels and you would physically splice the film and then with <laughs> tape and tape it together and then string it up on a projector and you'd go into class and you'd project the film on the on the wall with a with a projector and then you'd have a like a boom box or a tape recorder on the side and you would press play at the same time with music or narration and it would run this dual system um, to create a soundtrack for the film that was the silent film that was playing on the projector and lots of times it wasn't in sync and um, so you know I might be dating myself quite a bit but uh, it was a great way to learn because see the thing is now with with you know nonlinear editing and premiere and avid you can cut stuff up like at a, a snap of a finger and you can do, you know, you know, multiple um, versions of the same thing. You can just duplicate your cut, try stuff, do it quick, try all different things. But back then when you were actually had to had one print of the film and you physically had to splice it. And then if you made a mistake or wanted to do something different, you had to rip the tape off, redo it. It was so unbelievably cumbersome and time, you know, uh, sapping that, you really had to think ahead of time when you went out to shoot the film, what you needed to shoot to tell your story. So it made you super efficient and also made you even a better director to know going in, this is what I need. These are the pieces I need. You couldn't just shoot 
everything under the sun like you can now and then just throw it into the to your on your hard drive and cut it up like a million different ways so i i was i'm actually glad i went through it at a time when you still physically had to cut the film um uh ahead of time it just made you uh, i feel like it made me a much more efficient better more thoughtful filmmaker we're talking about understanding the pieces that you need after USC, you end up going back and, and working with the NBA again as you're mm-hmm. starting your own production company and all that. Uh, and there's this opportunity here with 30 for 30 comes along to do something with with Drazen. Uh, mm-hmm. And you had previously worked, if I'm not mistaken, Mike, on, on Drazen projects, right? Like you, yeah. you had more yeah. of an knowledge than anyone else, right? Exactly. You know, it's interesting because um, I was there working. I was doing a Celtics show called I Am a Celtic. It was a piece I had um, pitched to the NBA where I interviewed Bob Cousy, John Havlicek, and um, oh God, I forget the third guy. Anyway, um, and I was there working on that at the time. And then ESPN uh, had launched 30 for 30. And obviously ESPN went to all the leagues because the leagues owned all the footage. So they knew that um, to make some of these projects work, it was good to be in bed with the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball because they own the footage and it would be more cost effective. So um, the NBA had pitched different stories like the Dream Team and um, they had started shooting a little bit um, with Drazen. They were had shot a little bit of stuff on a potential Drazen uh, Petrovic only story. Um, and then at the time, um, I was there and I had graduated from USC and I had all this new knowledge about how to structure and tell, you know, feature documentaries and stories. And, and so, you know, they asked me about it. And, you know, I, at the moment I remembered in the early nineties, when I was at the NBA, they had done a piece on the, on the Yugoslavian team. It was like an eight minute feature and it had Drazen in it and Vlade and Tony Kukoc. And it was a little bit of, it was about, that team and that was the time when the war in Yugoslavia had started and it was just starting to break up and I had always remembered that that feature and I I knew that now that many years later there was probably way much more to tell at the same time I had done a bunch of features with the Sacramento Kings this is when the Kings had Vlade and Weber and um you know Bibby and and those great teams that challenged the Lakers so we were always out in Sacramento a lot with the Maloops owning the team and I had gotten to know Vlade pretty well personally. So then uh, when the, the 30 for 30 came about and they were talking about Draz, and I, I thought about that feature, I thought about my relationship with Vlade. And so I pitched it and I said, hey, instead of doing just Draz, why don't we do it more as a bigger piece about that, the breakup of that Yugoslavian team, those great players, but also do it, tell that through the, the relationship between uh, Vlade and Drazen the Serbian player and the great Croatian player, how they were together in their childhood and, and reached their dreams of, of being one of the first Europeans to come to the NBA and then how the war tore it apart. I mean, to me, it played out just like a Hollywood movie. Um, and I wrote up a treatment, pitched it to the NBA. They shared it with ESPN and they were on board. And then on top of that, the NBA, as you guys know, with like the last dance and everything, the NBA was meticulous with, um, the amount of footage and, and their archives. Um, I mean, NFL films, obviously, as we know that, but the NBA, I think, is underrated in the amount of stuff that they shot and archived. Mm-hmm. And I had seen a lot of that. Some of that was in it was in um, inside stuff. I mean, some of the stuff that's in Once Brothers was inside stuff shoots, like Vlade going shopping on Venice Beach and things like that. Um, so I knew Once and, Vlade, and Mike, the opening scene too, yeah. right? Is Willow Bay's interviewing... Drazen, yeah, is that exactly. from that's from that, that stuff? That that is a feature I did with Willow and Drazen um, in New Jersey. By there was a, a, a statue there. That was a that was a piece I personally did. So um, I knew <laughs> right off the bat that was a great way to start the kind of a cold open. So all these kind of uh, worlds collided, and then when Vladi was on board um, to do it, and and not just give like a one, you know, one three hour interview or a couple sit down interviews, but I wanted to like actually have him go retrace the steps of his life to make sense of what happened. Um, and once Vlade heard that and said, Oh yeah, sure. No problem, man. I'll take you back to Serbia, Croatia. I'll do whatever you want. Then I knew 
I had the pieces to to tell this kind of epic story. We had Allah Abdonabi on the podcast about a month or so ago. And when he was at Duke, he said they played all the European teams. They went over the Europe over summer and they were playing all the European teams as they got ready for the Olympics. And they had mm. this banquet the night before everybody started playing and said thousands of people showed up just to see Drazen walk off an elevator when he was when he was a kid. He was the he was yeah. the biggest star. Do you have a, an anecdote that you remember from not just Once Brothers, but going all the way back that really encapsulates what type of star he was? Well, let me think. I mean, I know that there's a a, a museum for Drazen. Like, I mean, he's like Elvis in Croatia. I mean, literally, like, it's hard to comprehend, but mm. he was such a massive star there, even before he came to the NBA for Portland. Um, even Vlade says it in in the beginning of the film, like, you know, we were good. Like, he and, and Tony Kukoc and Zarko Pospai and these guys, they were good, but there was this guy that was a little older that was, like, you know, on another level, and that was Drazen. And, um, you know, he was, like, worshipped there. And, you know, I know, like, his his mom told the story or his brother told the story where um, his mother, I think, had gone to the gravesite to tend to the grave and plant flowers. And a man and his young son came up to her and he said, like, Drazen is not just your son. He is all of our sons. Like, like this, this man spoke to the mother, mm-hmm. like, he's all of ours. Like he represents Croatia and all of us and all of our family. And we hold him in such high esteem. And, um, you know, just the fact he was such an unbelievable scorer and he was cocky and he was, he was a good looking kid and handsome. And I mean, he had all those elements that help you cross over from just good basketball player to like iconic celebrity. Um, and so hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense of, mm-hmm. of his importance in that part of the world. Um, and I think the NBA was just starting to get a glimpse of it um, before he tragically passed away. Mike, when I'm watching the documentary, I rewatched last night just to get a refresher before talking to you. Mm-hmm. The thing that it struck me was just all of the similarities with Drazen and Pistol Pete. They, they mm-hmm. grew up both so driven that like this was their singular mm-hmm. focus in life. They're both six foot five. They shoot the ball. They put up crazy scoring exploits. They were heroes everywhere they went. And like all the flashing is like, it's just so nuts. And then they both, they both died early. Um, yeah. They died at a young age, which is crazy. I mean, I just over and over again, I think about the parallels. I know one person, I want to say Danny Ainge mentioned it, that comparison in the documentary. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if anyone else mm-hmm. has brought that up. The idea that they, they just are, had these crazy similar paths you know I, I think it was danny and i think i had heard that from a couple people but to be honest for myself i had it and, and now that you say it you know I, I i remember i mean in my mind i remember some of these flashy passes and and double pump moves and um you know obviously there's the pure scoring ability uh that i think you know i think that's spot on i wonder if, if drazen had you know, seeing uh, Pistol P play or his highlights. I mean, mm. Drazen was like, he was like maniacal about his game and like going and shooting like like outside on his own, uh, putting a chair out of the court. Like he would just do it over and over and over and over and over. Like he was obsessed. And I think, you know, I know Pistol Pete a little bit. I know his dad was a hard driving guy and probably, you know, had him do that. But I think with Drazen, I don't think it was parents. I think it was just inside of himself that he just wanted to be the greatest, you know, player scorer that, that there ever was. Um, and, um, you know, even, even, I don't know if it was in the film, but Vladi says like, you know, the minute the game was over, Vladi would be looking at a stat sheet and like, you know, comparing himself with everybody else. And obviously almost to like a negative level that it became so obsessive. Uh, it drove him so much that, uh, um, you know, I think that, I think that comparison is is appropriate, no question. One of the other things that really struck me about about the film, looking back, is that conversation Magic and Vlade are having 
on a commercial shoot talking about mm-hmm. Drazen's unhappiness. It's crazy how frank mm-hmm. they are. It's still early in Vladi's career, so there's almost also this like disconnect in terms of the language, but you can tell yep. that these guys haven't spent a ton of time talking about things, and they're almost trying to find something to talk about. I'm, I'm curious about where you found that piece of footage, and yeah. then also yeah. what else What else sort of might have you know, um, encapsulated what was going on with Drazen at that time? Yeah, dude, I mean, that's funny you brought that up because there's kind of a funny story. I mean, we had started working on the film and we had asked one of our production assistants just to like comb through anything that Vlade, Drazen related, old shoots and stuff. And, you know, we would be able to find, lots of times we'd be able to find the, the finished, you know, feature, but not always the, the raw shoot tapes. Mm-hmm. And and this, the, the, the production assistant found the raw shoot tapes and he was just spinning through and for some reason, the camera, it was like a BT, you know, behind the scenes shoot. And they were shooting this commercial that Vlade and, and um, Magic was doing for like NBA authentics, like for the gear or the hats or whatever. And during a break when the guys are just like, you know, having like something to drink and a, and a snack at the craft service table, Magic and Vlade were just kind of, you know, shooting the crap with each other. And it just, and, and the PA runs in and goes, you won't believe this kind of in this offhanded little <laughs> moment, uh, this throwaway moment, Magic and Dr- Vlade are just talking and they bring up and Magic asks them about Drazen. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And I pop it in and thank God the audio guy was there with the boom mic, like recording it. And it was just one of those pieces of gold that you, that you hope for as a filmmaker. When you find it, it's just like, oh my God, this is so awesome because it, it's so genuine. I mean, when you watch it, it's not like a sit down interview bite. It's not some pre-scripted thing. Like this is like a real raw. And like you said, he's so genuine. His English is broken. That's still when they were friends. Um, And when they would talk to each other every day on the phone about their experience. And here was Vlade playing a ton with the Lakers and the Lakers doing well. And then you have Drazen who was considered the way better player in Europe sitting on the bench behind Clyde Drexler and Ainge and, you know, Terry Porter and not having a chance and being frustrated and sad. Um, it, but that was just, it, you know, that's, again, when you're a filmmaker uh, to have that little discovery, that treasure that you just weren't, weren't expecting uh, was just fantastic. So. As a filmmaker, what makes yeah. Vlade so special to work with? Oh man. I mean, he's just like, he's like the most laid back, like guy you can imagine he's just such a good guy and like even i think in the film tony kukuk talks about how drazen was this maniacal like like machine that was like like so rigorous on his routine and he's like ah, vlade would come in with his like shirt untucked <laughs> he'd be like 10 minutes late he wasn't shaved you know his hair was all messy like he's just kind of like the super laid back nice guy and and that was the thing, like, as a filmmaker, you, you, you know, you don't know what you're going to get from your main character. But like, when I pitched them the idea, I'm like, hey, Vlade, can we, you know, can we go to, can we drive like five hours to your parents' house, you know, in the sticks of Serbia? Yeah, yeah, no problem, man, no problem. Hey, can we go fly to LA and have you sit out with magic, you know, on the beach? Oh, no problem, no problem. So like, everything was no problem. And um, so to work with him and have him do all these things that weren't easy. They involve travel, they involve time, they involve, you know, you know, stuff with his family to have him say no problem. Um, it was just, it was just unbelievable. And, you know, and, and he's a good guy in his heart and this is a story he wanted to tell. And so, um, you know, I'm still friends with him to this day. And uh, I actually just saw him, I just ran into him in LAX airport, maybe three months ago. I was, uh, flying back to the Bay Area and he was getting off the plane. It was him and Peja Stojakovic like walking off the plane and uh, I just walked <laughs> up to him and like Vladdy's like, oh Mike, what's up? It's Peja, you know? And he shakes your hand and his hands are like so massive that they just fully engulf. Like you don't re- you don't remember how big and tall Vlade is and he's still that way. And um, you know, and then like some of the classic stories like we're interviewing him in Serbia in this like cafe and then in the minute we like take a break you know he's smoking a cigarette and, <laughs> you know very european and uh you know just 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 a great guy and a great player and a great passer and you know 
you know, he's, he's starting to have some success as a GM now and also uh, I'm very happy for him. It's, it's pretty awesome. I, I remember as a kid, everyone would talk about Dino Raja, like smoking on the bench and all that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, Mike, yeah. I, 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 I was curious. I know you can't put everything in films. And so right. I was wondering, and you touched on it, there's sort of this disconnect in terms of where their careers were when they first got over here. And obviously Lakers having success, Vladi playing a lot and different for Drazen. How much do you think that factored in to their relationship getting splintered? That's a good question, uh, Adam. You know, I, I, we didn't really bring that up in the film. I mean, we we knew that we said that, you know, Drazen wasn't happy because he wasn't playing, you know, any guy that is confident in himself and knows that he can succeed. And, and, and when he did get into the games, he actually did, do well you know that's mm-hmm. frustrating you know and he was this huge 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 star but again he was very competitive and he was the way bigger star than than vlade overseas and now you get to the nba where he's on this world globe you know i'm sure drazen wants to like just show the world how great he is and he's sitting on the bench and then you have his this younger guy in vlade who maybe wasn't as you know as skilled of a scorer getting all this time and going to the finals and playing with magic and all these great players. I'm, you know, I don't think he probably said that publicly or to Vlade, but knowing his personality, I'm sure that aided him. Not that he was, un- not that he was jealous of Vlade, but that he was probably resentful to the Pacers. I mean, to the um, Blazers for not letting him show what he could do. I mean, I think any of us would feel that way if we were in, in that same position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to transition to cue ball. And mm-hmm. after watching my, my first thought, actually, while I watched was how, how do you do this film shoot day after day, leave and go sleep at either home or hotel, knowing that the guys that you've been spending all this time with might never sleep in a home ever again. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough, man. I mean, once you, you know, before you go into a, a prison, you know, especially one like saying this is this, I, you know, this infamous prison, San Quentin, and you go in, you kind of have these, you know, you think of guys in prison and the movies and, and, and the cells and all that stuff, but you don't really get a true sense of what it's like day in and day out and, and, and the same thing and the guards and the gun turrets and the fights that break out or, you know, um, all the things, you know, the visitations or, 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 you know, having to go to the hole and all these things. And, you know, then once you go in, you know, time and time again, and you get to know these guys on a personal level and build relationships. Um, I think when you, every day that we would walk out of San Quentin after a shoot, you'd feel these mixed emotions. Like, you were very happy in a sense that you got to leave, you know, like to, to go through the gate and uh, get in your car and drive home. You're like relieved. But at the same time, you felt bad um, for some of these guys that, um, you know, are, are, are living like 25 to life or hundred to life sentences um, for things they had done. Some of them when they were, you know, 16 years old kids. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a strange feeling. It's a mixed feeling. Now, obviously the majority of, of the guys in St. Quentin and other prisons did things um, that brought them to that place. Um, but at the same time, I learned firsthand that these people still need to be looked at as, as human beings. And, and some of the crimes that were committed, the, some of the sentences that, that these guys got um, seemed somewhat uh, severe or extreme and um you know and again you have to remember the guys that we dealt with on the basketball team no one not everyone gets to play on the basketball team these are guys that have committed and dedicated to themselves to rehabilitating themselves to becoming better men to to rejoining society and being good members of society and taking care of their families and their and these are guys that have proven to be you know model prisoners that have shown a track record of being not only well behaved but you know, leaders within the prison, helping other inmates change their lives and turn their lives around with um, job training and emotional support and therapy. So um, these are, these are, you know, 
guys that you and I on the street would be friends with. These are guys that um, you play pickup ball with. These are not guys that are these hardened, you know, F, F everybody, I'm violent, I'm going to stay that way, whether I get out tomorrow or get out in 10 years. So this is, this is a unique population um, that you're dealing with. So uh, I just want to make that clear and, mm-hmm. and know that. So that's part of the reason I wanted to tell their story. And for many reasons, we're rooting for these guys to, to turn their lives around and, and get a chance to come out and, and um, be positive, you know, you know, people in their communities. Mike, to that end, it's, it's funny. I've never told you this, but uh, uh, I, I don't know, maybe a month, two months ago, we were having a conversation with my wife's best friend, her husband, and we were talking about the movie Cue Ball because they had, uh, they were going to, they had like, it was in their queue, no pun intended, and mm-hmm. they're, they're ready to watch mm-hmm. it. And so I was telling them about my relationship with you and, and all and how I thought it was just a great film and everything. And we start talking and it turns out then um, we put two and two together that like the husband of uh, my wife's best friend actually mm-hmm. knew the guy in high school who was involved in the stabbing outside the Giants game. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just wild. And, and to that point, he was saying, oh, a lot of people loved him, all this. And he started running with the bad crowd. And that night got the, the best of them. I'm, I'm curious, like, actually how you put it together you have to find characters so i'm sure you're mm-hmm. i don't know are, are you it what does it look like are you given a list of like here's everybody's crimes that's on the basketball team and who's <laughs> willing to talk and tell their stories and yeah. how do you know to not put guys in a good light <laughs> who who maybe yeah. they're they're lying about what their story is so anyway yeah. how does it all work yeah yeah i mean it was it was it was trial and error and you know it was a huge learning experience for me because uh, I had never done a, a film like this. I mean, I'd done documentary films, but this is a pure verite film where you're, there's no are really archival about it. It's all happening. You're following the season. These guys are involved. You don't really know these guys. So literally we did a lot of work where we went into the prison, you know, ahead of time and just sat down, not with cameras and just interviewed, you know, the guys that helped run the program. Uh, Rafael Cuevas, who was the coach, all the people, we got a roster list with their names, their nicknames. Um, but as far as their crimes and things like that, we didn't really know until I sat them down. I, we interviewed probably maybe 16 guys that were on the team um, and just did kind of initial interviews where we just got the basics about their names, where they were from, their background, when they started playing basketball, and also like why they were in prison, like to talk about their crime. And, you know, it was really eye-opening to see how many guys were willing to, to talk about their crime. Um, some, were, some were evasive, kind of hinted at it, but didn't get into details. But our, our you know, our primary characters, including um, Raphael, who's the coach, were very frank mm-hmm. um, and I feel like uh, very honest. And I think part of that is at San Quentin, there's so many of these self-help programs where these guys have gotten used to sharing their stories, you know, with counselors, with fellow inmates. Part of the rehabilitation process is owning up to what you did um, and and not hiding behind that. And so even though the camera was, and I, you know, for Raphael, it was the very first interview we did um, with the camera. And I asked him, so what brought you to San Quentin? And then he just, just looked right into the camera and told like a, you know, like a 20 minute, answer on exactly what happened and um my jaw just kind of dropped because i wasn't expecting that right away some of the other mm-hmm. inmates you know took a little longer to, to build trust and, and things like that but um once i had heard that i knew that the film could be more than just you know how how basketball is a tool for rehabilitation that would be part of the film and that's what i thought the film would be all about but it ended up being just part of that and it was more became more about some of these individuals' stories um, and their journeys and how, how being part of the basketball team helped them along that journey. The guys, Mike, who come in weekly to play the, the San Quentin Warriors, do you know if any of those guys who spent all that time with the members of the San Quentin team, whenever the guys in prison got out of jail, if any of those other guys have helped them get jobs and reacclimate yeah. to society? 
Yeah. Yeah. Those guys are super dedicated. The guys that come in and, and a lot of the guys that come in are, you know, D1 players. These guys played in D1, some played overseas, um, but they're part of, a lot of them are part of kind of church groups, religious groups that have made it their purpose to kind of do volunteer work um, and kind of outreach. And um, when I know multiple guys that either played on the San Quentin Warriors or were involved in, you know, um, they call them the GM. They have like GMs and stuff in in the prison that help uh, organize the program and the schedule. Uh, a lot of those guys have, have been since been released and, um, and these guys that do play the outside teams that come in, a lot of these guys are successful business people. Some of them are Silicon Valley, big shots. Like they've, um, they've definitely helped these guys, you know, um, with resumes or interviews or, or referrals. Um, and even the Golden State Warriors, um, like the Lakeups and stuff, have, have stayed involved in the program and have helped. Obviously, with with Harry Smith, they mm-hmm. they they gave him that opportunity to try out for the G League. So there's an ongoing. It's not just you know throwing the ball up. There 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 is an outreach and a support, um, and also kind of a faith based part of the program uh, uh, that, that's helped and continues to try to help these guys. But ultimately, it's really up to them. I mean it's a difficult transition uh, to go back into society and to try to live, you know, past, you know, a record that you have and get a job. Um, I know it's not easy. Uh, and these guys face a lot of obstacles. Um, I think even now, even more so with, with, with everything that's going on. So um, I've tried, I've kept in touch with a lot of these guys and built, built relationships and I've tried to do what I can do to kind of help guide them uh, myself. What do you think the the impact on on the Warriors people, um, on their staff and everything when they come to play this game? And you got to watch, and I'm sure there's some members of the staff. It was their first time uh, experiencing this. What, what do you think is the is the biggest impact for them? Yeah, well, I think it's been going on for like eight years now. I mean, some of the guys that have gone in there to play, um, you know, Mark Jackson when he was a coach went and played. Luke Walton played. Uh, Steve Kerr went in. I don't know if he, he actually played in the game, but the biggest guy is Bob Myers. Bob, um, uh, he didn't play the year that we shot the film because he was having back surgery. But up to that point, um, Bob was so moved by the program that not only would he go in to play in that big game at the end of the season, but mm-hmm. sometimes unbeknownst, he would go in with the weekly, he would ask the, like the green team and some of these other teams that go in mm-hmm. regularly, if he could just go in on an off week just to get a run with these guys and to see them. And I think it made him kind of fill his heart up a little bit and made him, made him uh, feel good that he was able to, to, uh, you know, play with these guys and fellowship with them. And, you know, for those guys, you know, one guy, one, one there's, a, there's a soundbite in the film where um, this guy, Bam, who was an inmate there says, you know what, like um, when other people, you know, we don't, lots of times people in prison don't care much about themselves, but when you have other people come in and show that they care for you, then you start to care about yourself. And so to have mm-hmm. that be anybody is great, but then to have that be, you know, um, Bob Myers, the general manager of the world championship Golden State Warriors or Steve Kerr or Mark Jackson or, you know, Kevin Durant or Draymond Green, like it just, you know, so many of these guys, all their lives were told, like, you ain't, you ain't going to amount to nothing. They didn't have parents or they, you know, one guy's parents were drug addicts. And, you know, no one was there to give them confidence or tell them they could do it. Probably the schools they were in were not great. Um, their role models were, you know, you know, bad role models or gangbangers. So these guys are now grown men and only for the first time in their life are actually having people tell them that, hey, you're actually – we care about you. You're actually good at something. You could do this. Um, it makes, it's a huge, I mean, we take it for granted. I think a lot of us that were raised in, you know, you know, with two parents and supportive parents that you can't underestimate the power of that. So these guys are getting it later in life. And fortunately some of them are able to help them help it change their attitude and still try to go out and, and do the right thing. All right. Before we wrap up with some quick hits, one more on your career path at the PAC 12 network. Why'd you hire Adam? Oh, um, well, to be honest, I was, I was hired to 
kind of oversee the original content, the documentaries and the um, features and shows like that. But I was also kind of unbeknownst to me when I got there, they're like, oh, you're, you're also, we also want you to kind of oversee the studio shows, which uh-huh. I had a little bit of experience with, but not <laughs> a lot. And I, re- I quickly realized that I was in over my head and that, you know, I needed to get, you know, I mean, there were some producers there that were, were, were great, but we were kind of understaffed. And so I was desperate to get someone in there that, you know, I felt was really good at their job and new studio and new all the ins and outs, the technical part, the talent part. And um, and then when when I saw Adam's resume and I talked to him on the phone and and got his, you know, listened to his references and people talking about him and just his attitude. And um, I just knew that we had, you know, had a great, you know, a great prospect and I was desperate to get him in. And there were some back and forth with the contract. Uh, but ultimately we were able to get it done. And, and Adam, uh, he was, he was, he was, he, he turned out to be even better than I expected. And, you know, he's just such a team player and talented and creative and, you know, doesn't take things too seriously and has fun with it. And the fact that he's still there at PAC 12 and has been promoted and, you know, is, has a ton of responsibility there. It doesn't surprise me. And, you know, I'm happy for him and everyone at the PAC 12. And I was just glad to be able to bring him in and, and uh, build a friendship with him. Wait, what, what were, Adam's contract demands um, <laughs> money. You know, he wanted more money. Like <laughs> yeah. Noah understands. And, uh, I made the same demands yeah. for our partnership. Yeah. You know, well, uh, thanks. <laughs> well, I like, I got to tell you, I, I greatly appreciate it. No, we can stop the podcast right now. I'm done. That's, no, that's all I need to hear. I'm just waiting. Let's let's wrap up with some, some quick hits. Do you have sure. a Kobe story? So I have a Kobe story. You know, I, I actually personally do not have a Kobe story. I never, like, all my time when I was back and forth at the NBA, I was never, I never got really put on a Kobe project. Um, I, I do remember Andy Thompson, who was a producer there that was involved with, with the Bulls film. He, he became friends with, with Kobe. And I remember him telling me the story about, this was years and years ago, how Kobe lived in like Orange County and he would take a helicopter to practice every day. And this was years and years ago. And I just thought, wow, that's crazy, man. Like, really? Like I never had really heard anybody doing anything like that. And why would he live down there and do that? And so then it was just kind of, you know, I, I, the minute I heard about about Kobe's crash, I just quickly remembered that story that Andy had told me. And I was just like, oh my God, like crazy. But no, I don't really have any anything inside that you, you guys haven't probably heard from from other people better that, that knew him firsthand. What, Mike, what's, uh, what's it like working with Kevin Durant? KD was great, man. I mean, he's another like Vada. He's another like super laid back cat. You know, he's, um, but you know, with, 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 with KD, man, He's so much, he loves the game of basketball so much. Like it's been so integral in his life, like as a child and obviously whatever he's been able to accomplish since then that um, he was just, he and he had gone to San Quentin. So when he saw the sizzle reel and the pitch for, for cue ball, he was like, I'm on board. And his, his business partner, Rich Kleiman, they were on board. And once they kind of just told us kind of the themes and some of the things that impacted them when they went to San Quentin, they were just really, hands off and let me and, and our crew do our thing and then when we had rough cuts we would show them and they'd give us some feedback but it was never like you have to do this you have to do that it was just super laid back supportive um kind of dude and you know I, I really really appreciated uh the trust that they that Kevin and, and Ben Rich had in, had in me you interviewed as mentioned Danny Ainge and Larry Bird for once brothers as a Celtics yeah. fan how much did you need to actually have them in the story and how much was, Oh, here's an opportunity for me to go interview Danny Ainge and Larry Bird. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the film would have been, still would have been, I think great without Ainge and Bird in there. So there's a little of that just wanting me to have another opportunity to talk to, to these guys <laughs> that, that were my heroes. Um, but the fact that Ainge did play with, with draws in, uh, in Portland and had a good little anecdote and, um, and Larry, just because of his, you know, uh, the fact that he competed too and was kind of a, you know, he was a white player and had that cockiness. So there was enough overlap that I could get away with uh, interviewing those guys and, and just getting a couple bites in. 
What what's the idea early in your career that got nixed that got you down at one point? Hmm. Oh, that's a really good question, man. Uh let me think. Is there anything that got nixed? Um I can't really remember anything. I I would sometimes come out with kind of outlandish ideas that um I would pitch and you know, I can't remember anything specific offhand and they'd get shot down. And, you know, looking back, I'm sure some of those would have, would have been disasters and wouldn't have worked. But I really think that, you know, if, if my boss at the time was, would have been willing to take a, a shot, um, that some of those more outlandish ideas or pitches probably would have been some of the most original and, and best and most interesting pieces or films that I probably would have ever done. So I would say that, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're in a position of, of overseeing creative people and you get sometimes outlandish or wild kind of ideas, like don't just throw them away real quick. Like I'm not saying do every single one of them, but if you have belief in the person that's pitching, that they have the talent and, and you understand where it's coming from, maybe take a chance because taking that risk, you might up at having, you know, the, the best piece and the most original uh, and talked about piece that, that you've ever been involved with. So. Yeah. I like that piece of advice. We close the podcast all the time with the rejecting the screen question, since that is mm-hmm. rejecting the screen, like the guys back in the nineties used to play, who would you take to get you a bucket? And the guys in the back of the bus used to say, well, and you can't say Jordan. So of right, the guys right. that you have spent time with on shoots from your career, who would yeah. you choose to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket, and for you, can't say Jordan, can't say Bird? Okay. Well, obviously those guys would be my my first two, but I would say I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep it with uh, Celtics. I'm sure no one's probably gave you this one, but I'll say Paul Pierce. Um, Paul gets a lot of heat, I think now uh, that is, with some of his comments and commentary, but <laughs> he was clutch, you know, in that second wave of. You know, I still I still feel the pain of Len Bias. I mean, that's probably my biggest thing that hurts me. Um, I was a huge, huge Bias fan when he was at when he was at Maryland. I loved him more than Jordan anybody. And then when Red Auerbach kind of did the okie doke, like made it sound like he was going to draft uh, Brad Doherty, and then mm-hmm. we got mm-hmm. uh, the Celtics got Bias. Dude, I was so through the roof because as much as I love Bird and Ainge and all these guys, like I. I love guys that played above the, above the rim. I love Dominique Wilkins and the Celtics never really had a guy like that. And here they had Len Bias. And I just thought, man, we're going to win three or four more championships. Bird and McHale and all those guys' careers are going to ex- be extended. And then when he passed away like that, God, man, like I remember I used to wear like a black armband around. Like I was just so, so devastated mm. uh, uh, with, with what we never got to see uh from when i think it would have changed the landscape of of that that those years with the celtics and you just never know because i think he is just i mean unbelievable so i mean i know that's kind of off off the question but uh just brought brought it up to my mind yeah we appreciate it mike we appreciate all your time and folks listening who haven't seen once brothers i don't know where you've been but go check out once brothers the 30 for 30 also cue ball you can watch it on netflix and check out mike's Mm -hmm. imdb page and go back and watch anything else that he's done yeah and not only is he an amazing filmmaker obviously big fan but the best boss i ever had i i uh, appreciate the friendship and and certainly working with you mike t i'm sure we'll we'll be working together down the road but um yeah for people that don't know i mean i think it comes across in your films because they're so heartfelt but just the person you are is uh on another level so i've always appreciated yeah. the friendship and and getting the opportunity to work for you brother well thanks uh Adam and, and no, I, I really, really appreciate that. I mean, that comment means a lot to me. Uh, you know, it's about being a person. And part of the reason I'm doing films is is because of the collaboration. You know, uh, working with people like you, Adam, and people on the crew and sharing ideas. That's the most rewarding thing to me. It's not going to the premiere or winning the awards. It's it's the collaboration. And uh, I'm super uh, uh, appreciative of, of of the opportunities I've gotten. And uh, I want to congratulate you guys on rejecting the screen and the traction you're getting and the success you're having and all the awesome guests that you guys are getting on. Um, 
So keep it going. I'll be listening and I uh, hope lots of other people's uh, people continue to tune in. We appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, you got it, guys. Thanks again. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, check out Q-Ball on Netflix and Once Brothers on ESPN+. Plus. Mike also, from what I understand, met his wife at NBA Entertainment. So we didn't, we didn't get into that part of the collaboration that he likes so much about working in film. Because <laughs> that, I guess, would be the, the ultimate collaboration. But <laughs> that is the a, ultimate collaboration. A terrific guy. I never talked to Mike. We have so many mutual friends from having worked at the NBA, but it was nice to hear him so, say so many glowing things, not surprising about you. I appreciate it. It's, you know, it's funny that the guys that I've come across that have spent time at, at NBA, Pat Devlin's a friend of mine, obviously yourself, Nat Butler, Mike Talasia. I mean, the amount of just good people that I've met that, that have a background that, it, that are NBA alums, if you will, uh, it's just, it's blown me away. Why do why do you think that is that that so many good people came from the uh, the NBA family? Well, I think a lot of a lot of people there have been there their entire careers. There are a lot of senior vice presidents there that started as production assistants or loggers. So it's guys that have gotten to know each other personally over the years and have stuck together and have seen the league evolve over the past thirty years. Hmm. interesting interesting it's just yeah it's just an incredible it's an incredible group from the from the people that i've that i've come across but uh yeah i'm I'm so happy for mike because like i said he he's an outstanding boss but he's he's just a really great person and so talented i mean again if you haven't seen like he said cue ball on on netflix check that out right away uh once brothers might be if not the the best 30 for 30, it's, it's in the conversation for, for the best 30 for 30. And uh, I mean, both those films are just outstanding. So uh, he's going to do great stuff as, as we move forward, especially, you know, running Fox's original content too. Mm -hmm. So. All right. We're on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam's Mm. daughter, Avery is taking that over. Adam's on Twitter at Naismith lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Everything else on the locked on podcast network. Locked on NBA five days a week. Hollinger and Duncan every Monday. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, all things NBA Draft. Locked on Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. And your team every day on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.